It's your Kali. What's up? The following program was brought to you by Yolo Kali. Keeping it weird since 1997. Oh. Who's that? Who are you? You're not allowed to be in here. Hey, yo, somebody get their grandma. Huh? Ah! Ah! Nah, you gotta do it like this. What's Up is back with another two hours of fully youth-produced content, tapping into the matters and concerns of youth in Chicago. As well as all the crazy, wacky, tea-sipping, gossip-spilling, weird shenanigans that we, youth, get up to. Listen to your own risk, because your mind might explode. The chances are low, but never zero. So strap in, and let's get into the show! Hello, everybody. You're listening to What's Up on WLPN LP 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio, Chicago. My name is Emmanuel, and I am broadcasting from the comfort of my room. But for fantasy's sake, let's just say that I'm broadcasting live from Studio Y, Yolokali, in Little Village. Oh, wow. Mira que bello se mira acá dentro. Oh, my God. Steph got new mics. Oh, my God. Look at that over there. Yeah, Studio Y, y'all. So today's show is YOLO Crash to Class at Notre Dame again. And for all of you true longtime What's Up listeners and YOLO Cali stands out there, you might remember that three years ago we were invited by Alex Chavez, the Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Notre Dame, to teach creative writing and audio editing in his class, Ballads to Hip Hop, Music, Migration, and American Latinxes. We went onto campus and gave our three-hour class, and I happened to be one of the two instructors teaching the audio editing part of the class, along with another student from the Your Story, Your Way class, Zipporah Ada, who taught the creative writing portion of the class. Using the new skills and techniques that we taught the students, they created final audio productions for the class that we then later played on our first YOLO Crash to Class radio show. And so now, fast forward to three years later, we were invited back, back, back again to teach the children of the world how it's done with our three-day class, Podcasting with Yolokali. Not only that, as part of Yolokali's year-long 25th birthday party, this collaboration is one of the 25 projects Yolo's doing throughout the year's celebration as part of the Heart Beyond the Home series, where we take the magic of YOLO somewhere else outside of the space and just simply into the world. Ay, corazón de vago. And y'all, the ratings are officially in. Critics have described the class as deliciously spontaneous and information stuffed. An experience that has to be experienced if you want to experience experiences. And even the campus priest says, What in the name of my blue-eyed Jesus? I want to make a podcast. Sign me up. This time around, our fabulous instructors were none other than Yolo Cali's August Abitang and Melissa Regalado, teaching script writing and audio mixing and manipulation for the class's final project of producing their own podcast. In today's show, we'll be listening to the collection of podcasts made by the students of Notre Dame's Ballads to Hip Hop, Music, Migration, and American Latinxes where they had to discuss different themes and topics present in any musical genre of their choosing, featuring genres like hip-hop, Afrobeat, EDM, bachata, mariachi, and many more. We'll also have a conversation with the class professor, Alex Chavez, 
as well as hear insights from students after the three-day class. But before all that, I want to invite two very special guests onto the show. They single-handedly invented the craft of podcasting, both previous students of the Your Story, Your Way, Yolokali class, and now one of them's off to college and the other is co-instructing the class. The instructors of the podcasting with Yolokali class, August Abitang and Melissa Regalado, everybody. Woo! Hi, my name is August Abitang. I was the instructor for the in-person session and I was in charge of uh, instructing how to use GarageBand, so audio production. And my name is Melissa and I was the virtual instructor where I helped students kind of have an idea on story writing, script writing, and how to implement that for their podcast. So could you both tell us your history with YOLO and how long that you've been in the program? Uh, I've been with YOLO Cali since 2013. I took street art with Nick Marzullo and then and then I left and then I left for a long time. Yeah, I graduated high school and then I was like, oh, I got to get, get, get a real job. I don't know why I thought that, you know, just experience the world. And I came back and I was helping with the garden, like volunteer work with, with Hanan. And then uh, she's like, why don't you join? Why don't you join Steph's class? You know, so, Hanan sounded like that. Interesting. Yeah, she did. yeah. Oh, at the time she had strep throat, I think. Oh. Yeah, that's why. Yeah. The um, gardening fumes will do that to one. <laughs> Yeah, all the mulch, all the mulch in the air just kind of, yeah, so she's like, why don't you join Steph's class? You're not too late. And I wasn't, I wasn't. I joined Steph's class and uh, and I've been, I've been rocking with it ever since. It's been really fun. Nice. And so are you, you started as a student, I'm assuming, but like, what has that led up to today? Oh, now, now I'm uh, co-instructing with Steph. Yes! What is that like? <laughs> what does that entail? My goodness, it's, it's honestly, it's probably... The most fun I've ever had at YOLO, work-wise, because you get to do all the same stuff, but you're also building other people up. So that's really fun. I'm really proud to see what the rest of the crew can make and just try to like lead that in that direction and try and foster that. So it's been really rewarding. And so Melissa, how about you? So I joined YOLO in twenty, the summer of 2018. Um, at first I was a street art student and then I went to radio. And that's pretty much it. You know, I was a student and then for like a while, I guess I was like an intern there. And then I left in 2021. And so moving on, you know, we have the credentials and we have the prior experience in podcasting. So it only makes sense that the next step is to teach it to the children of the world. Can y'all walk the audience step by step on what your three day podcasting class was like and putting that all together? For me, it's just like I try to think about like, okay, when I was writing a script, how what are like the process I went through? What are the steps I took? So I would kind of do my steps and then I would try to see like the main focus point on every step, any tips I could give, any like, I guess, any struggles I've gone through when writing a script and just trying to make it like easier for like someone who probably has no experience, you know, easier for them to do it. Cause obviously at the end of the day, like you have to make it easier. You have to make it understandable, consumable, I don't know, digestible, but yeah. For me, audio production has been a part of my life since I was a teenager, right? So this is a skill that, that I've already had, but like Melissa said, you're learning to consolidate all that information into something that someone who's never done that could understand and learn from and, and actually do by the end of an hour. 
So that's that's where the like the real challenge came in. How do I explain this completely new like skill to people within that time frame and have them uh, understand it? And so you also did, you put together a little booklet for them to take their notes in? Yeah, I did. The original intention was for me to just write the notes and then not completely, like half the notes and then they fill in the rest. Uh, But then I got distracted making the the booklet. But I made a cool booklet and I, you know, it just looked cool. I just didn't want them to throw it away. So I I told them, uh, if you throw this away, you're going to hell, you know, because it's a, you know, because it's a Christian school. So, oh, I think it's Catholic. It's Catholic. Catholic. It's Catholic. Yeah. Oh, Catholics oh are Christian. I mean, yeah, they're yeah, they're Christian. Yeah. And so once y'all put together all of that curriculum, what was it like actually teaching it? I mean, obviously through Zoom, so everyone has their cameras off, and then you're asking questions, and then they're like, no response, you know. But then you have to pretend like you're putting them in your shoes, and like, okay, if I were a student, what would I ask, you know? And so I would make sure to do that throughout the whole presentation. Like, even if they didn't ask, I still said something. Overall, I guess the experience was fun. It was also interesting to see, you know, some people had really good ideas. Well, everyone had good ideas, but the ones who participated had really great ideas. And, <laughs> you know, it was just really nice to see how a lot of them were actually paying attention, you know, and going with the thought process and everything. Uh, the in-person day. That was super fun. You said that that was the earliest you've woken up in years. Is that correct? That's true. The tabloids are right about that one. (laughs) It's been a while since. Oh, my God. When did uh, when did you wake up for that day? I think six. 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 Yeah. And you were the first one there. (laughs) I was. I was. Me, you, Hanan and Steph all went to the trip. And so what was that trip? That trip like going to Notre Dame and seeing the campus? Oh, it looked like Hogwarts to me. Dragons and demons flying everywhere. Yeah, yeah, I was like, Jesus Christ, this is the end of times over here in <laughs> Indiana. And so we got to the campus and we had like two, three hours to spare. And so we took our own little tour. This is the second time that we go to Notre Dame to teach this class. And so we got a tour from Alex that time. And so this time I just tried to remember as much as I could. And I gave the tour. <laughs> I just pretty much walked. And so we got to see the hands of God scoring a touchdown. We went to their cathedral. When's the last time you walked into a church, August? That's oh, jeez. <laughs> but it was beautiful. Um, yeah, it's been it's been years. It was really pretty though. Wanted to steal everything. So quiet. I wanted a tongue pop. I wanted to just like hear the it echo off the walls. Yeah. Yeah. And so we made our way around. The holy water. We took some cute pics, some Polaroids that you will be seeing on our Instagram at Yolokali. We'll be posting those when we post this show. And we made our way back and then we taught our class. Uh, I remember we also brought some goodie bags for the students, right? It had like the notebook pamphlet that you made. It had Mm -hmm. some like a a Yolokali stress ball, a little bag of Takis, some stickers and buttons. Little swag bags, yeah. little pick me ups, and so then after day two, uh, we went back to virtual, and we had day three of our class, which was Q and A. Like we gave tips and come to us with your questions on creative writing, putting our script together, and with audio editing. So it was interesting just to see like if what I taught was actually like being oh, yeah. absorbed. It was just interesting. Like a lot of them were asking questions like, oh, you mentioned like this last time, like, how should I do this? 
I also thought it was really interesting that a lot of them were able to open up and like tell us about what they're writing. And I just, it was just interesting to see like, oh, like these people, like they're actually applying a lot of stuff that we, you know, try to communicate with them. It was really cool. I think the best part about it, like Melissa said, was uh, hearing what everyone else was working on and how they applied the knowledge that we taught to their project um, or they were, how they were planning on doing that. So that was really cool. It really did make you feel like uh, like they were listening, you know. And so for both of y'all, what was it like to be able to share the skills and the knowledge that Yolo has taught you with, with all of those students? It was obviously rewarding just to see like how easy and versatile a lot of like script writing and podcasts is. I guess it really emphasizes the importance of like how you should be distributing like information and how it shouldn't really be restricted to like only academics or a lot of people who like probably don't understand like that formality. So being able to like give it to like a podcast makes it more fun, invites the public and everyone to listen and discuss. And I feel like just having that experience specifically, like obviously they're college students, but they're also making stuff that's more digestible and for everyone. And so to apply that to like every day and, like, and everything, like it's just more inclusive that way. For me, teaching audio production was a real treat. When I first started, like as a teen, and I started this as a hobby, like making music and everything, I didn't have anyone to teach me that. I didn't have anyone to like show me around. Uh, so I'd have to look up everything that I needed to know or on the basis that like, oh, I don't know how to do this or is this possible, you know? And then I'd have to look up if it was even possible. So to get people to share that hobby was like, uh, it's like teaching someone how to play your favorite game to see if, if they're even into it or anything about this like new skill uh, was really cool to see. I really hope y'all enjoy uh, what the students put out. They had some really good topics from what we heard. And I think it's gonna make for a really good show. Woo! All right, thank you so much, August and Melissa. It was a pleasure having y'all on our radio show today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Sorry, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) And now that we've heard from the podcasting with Yolokali class instructors, we're going to take a listen to the first two podcasts in our collection of podcasts that we have for you today. So sit back, relax, and we'll be right back. Hey guys. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Indy Investigates. I'm your host, Indy, and today we will be investigating The Message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. For those of you who don't know, The Message is undoubtedly one of the most important songs in hip-hop history. The song was released in 1982 and used Grandmaster Flash's invention of scratching vinyls to create new beats and breaks in the music. The song made big waves when it first came out with a new style and technique being added to the hip-hop genre of New York's bustling music scene. It has not lost its influence and is still important to music today. According to the Who Sampled website, the message has been sampled in 298 songs over the years. You heard that right. 298 songs have sampled the message. That does not even include the references to the song in the rest of pop culture since it originally was released in 1982. 
I want to take you on a journey through time to see how Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five's groundbreaking record has influenced pop culture at some historical points. Take a ride with me as we take it back. The year is 1982, and a lot of different music is coming out of New York. DJs are starting to experiment with vinyl records and testing the ways that you are listening to music. One of your friends gives you a cassette to listen to on your Walkman. She says, homegirl, this artist Grandmaster Flash made a new track and it's gnarly. You promise her that you will listen to it and return the tape by the end of the weekend. After school, you pull out the tape from your friend and throw it in your Walkman as you lay across your bed. You are immediately transformed to the streets of New York with a musical sound that you have never heard before. It's like a jungle sometimes, it makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It's like a jungle sometimes, it makes me wonder how I keep from going under. The beats are cool, and they are rapping about things that you have seen in real life, but never heard of about in songs before. They talk about people who were plagued with unemployment, poverty, and crime, and you get it. From the first time you listen, you are hooked. Now let's take a jump forward to the year 1994. You are getting ready for school with your younger sister, and a female artist pops up on the MTV channel. You look at her and cannot quite recognize her, but the sound is solid, so you listen in. The tiny caption in the corner tells you her name is Debrat, and the song is called Ain't No Thing. About halfway through the song, you recognize a familiar sound bite. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. You have that lyric in your head all day, and you even zone out thinking about the song. Then it hits you. The same lyric and style was in the message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. You had heard artists sample each other before, but this is one of the first female artists you hear to bring in pieces from a male hip-hop track. You find out later that year that DeBrat is the first solo female rapper to go platinum with So So Def Records on the album that included Ain't No Thing. Now let's take a jump forward to the year 2006. You love going to the movies and head to the theater with your family. Your cousin is obsessed with all animals, so a movie about penguins and music sounds perfect to accommodate everyone. Happy Feet details the life of a penguin named Mumble, and you watch as he and his classmates find their songs. One of the little penguins steps forward and says that he has found a song in his heart, and this is how it goes. Don't push me, cause I am close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. Immediately, you are pulled back to the message when Melly Mel rapped the exact same lyric on his hit song with Grandmaster Flash. All you can do is laugh because the penguin is adorable and funny, but there is so much more. You look at your mom and dad, who do not even bat an eye at the lyric, but you know they would freak out if they heard you listening to the song The Message. You think about how judgmental they are, but instead of getting upset, you settle into your seat and decide that this is a way to be rebellious in a somewhat sneaky way. Your parent, zero, you, one. Now let's take a jump forward to the year 2017. It is summertime, and one of your favorite artists, Calvin Harris, just dropped a new album. You scroll through the titles and the features he includes on the Spotify playlist. You stop dead in your tracks when you see that one of the songs features Snoop Dogg, John Legend, and Takeoff. You have to hear this one because those are some heavy hitters in the music world, and you want to see how their sounds will all come together. You plug in the aux cord in your car, Turn up the volume and let the song Holiday take you away.
song in its entirety and then you have to start it over there was so much going on that you want to pick up on all the little details that there are as soon as you get to takeoff's part you are pleasantly surprised by a familiar sound this gives you a sense of nostalgia and you play the song holiday one more time but you can't get enough by the end of the summer, you can sing the entire song all the way through, and you have added it to your top songs of summer 2017 playlists on Spotify. Maybe that explains why Calvin Harris is in your top five most listened to artists on your Spotify wrapped. Now let's take a jump forward to the year 2018. One of your best friends introduces you to the style of music called Afrobeats. You are still trying to understand what it is and its deep history from globalization, but that doesn't stop you from wanting to dance to and sing along with artists like Burna Boy. You have heard the song outside a few times now, and it is always good. But you typically skip over the last part. The beats aren't as hard, and it is more of a pop vibe. While you are working on a project, the song plays all the way through for the first time since you probably have originally heard it. You hear pieces that sound just like the message, with a twist that takes you to an Afrobeats feel with the deep and soothing voice of Burna Boy. This life's a jungle sometimes I really wonder how I keep from going under yeah. It is the exact same part that comes from Grandmaster Flash's hit song You realize in that moment that this 1982 experimental record has come across time and genre and influenced artists worldwide This helps you have a greater understanding about the globalization that has brought us all types of music throughout the years Now let's take a jump forward to the year 2020 It is July and you have been living in a global pandemic for almost five months. You have exhausted your playlist and watched everything you care to watch on television. Spending months cooped up inside has pushed you to this point of boredom. So you give in and post on your Snapchat story that you are taking TV and movie suggestions from anybody. One of your friends reaches out and asks if you have Disney+. Plus. You do because your mom needed to find new ways to keep your siblings entertained during a pandemic with more streaming platforms. Your friend lets you know that Hamilton the Broadway musical is now available and that you should go and watch it. They say the music is good and that the storyline is fantastic. You hear a fusion of pop, rap, and hip-hop in a way that you never would have associated with Broadway and that hooks you in on the first song. Throughout the musical, you note some of your favorite songs and then the song Cabinet Battle Number 1 starts up. This is like a rap battle and you pause the TV to bring in your family to listen with you. The battle part ends and you hear a black man playing Thomas Jefferson sing a line from the song The Message. Such a blunder, sometimes it makes me wonder why I even bring the thunder. Why he even brings the thunder? You are hyped up. This has been an incredibly boring summer, but seeing this connection in a format that you would not have looked at by yourself makes you happy and you spend the rest of the summertime listening to the musical and picking up on other sonic references through time. Now let's bring it back to present day. You can see how much Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five have influenced pop culture across time, space, race, gender, and class. The scratching style revolutionized music and its hold over music and television shows its importance throughout history. Be on the lookout for more references to the message and also see if there's any other songs that have really laid the groundwork and foundation for other artists and genre for years to come. Thanks for joining me today for this episode of Indie Investigates. Take care and keep investigating, loveys.
Picture this, a concrete floor, a tarp for a ceiling, tents that have become homes, thousands of migrants living in uncertainty in Mexico as they wait to seek asylum in the US. And yet, space has been cleared here to create a makeshift church to celebrate a service where for once, the voices of the marginalized can be heard. This is the sound of the border that I encountered, a sound that is familiar but so very different. This podcast is about the genre of music that made this sound possible, a genre that, to me, has the power to transcend borders and unite hearts. Latin Christian music, like the border itself, is an intersection of cultures. As a subgenre of Latin music and contemporary Christian music, it combines the cultural pillars of language and faith, making it possible for an entire group of people to express their beliefs in words and sounds they identify with. The story of Latin Christian music actually begins in 1492. Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue and brought genocide, war, and disease to the Western Hemisphere. In the oppression and control of the Americas, colonialism also led to a huge spread of Christianity. The result is a strong sentiment of faith that can be felt all over Latin America. In fact, the Pew Research Center estimates that 88% of Latin Americans are Christian. Though the existence of this group of people is rooted in colonialism, they are the reason we have the genre of Latin Christian music. This audience is why we have sounds like the song playing now. This is Desesperado by Evan Kraft, an artist who has made it to the top of the charts in Latin Christian music, and whose song Va a Estar Bien even reached number one. The crazy thing is that this man isn't even Hispanic. Evan learned Spanish so that he could write music to reach the unique audience of Latin American Christians. Not only does Evan use the Spanish language to reach his audience, he also incorporates characteristics of Latin music, such as the beat and rhythm you can hear now. Evan's music stylistically and linguistically represents the heart of Latin Christian music. It is an intersection of language and culture for the purpose of enriching the prayer of Latin American Christians. Evan has crossed borders and cultural boundaries with his music. Latin Christian music is a way for people of different backgrounds, whether that is nationality, language, or culture, to come together over a shared belief in God. Returning to the border, we can begin to think about what this means at a place of such division. If you have ever belonged to Christian circles, you may have recognized the song from the beginning of this podcast, and you may even recognize the one playing now. At the service at the border, the songs played were covers of popular songs in contemporary Christian music, but done so in Spanish. This linguistic difference does not change the meaning of the song, nor the purpose of singing it. However, it does capture the fact that the genre of Latin Christian music makes use of our differences and incorporates them into the way we can express our common faith. Seeing this genre in action at the border was especially beautiful. Migrants from all over the world combined their voices with church and NGO leaders from the United States to give praise to God. 
there was a physical and political division keeping these groups of people apart, but music was able to bring them together. Though the border is filled with controversy and represents a division, I encountered a genre of music that unites. The service I attended and the example of Evan Craft show how this music transcends the things that divide us. Latin Christian music is the intersection of language, culture, and religion in music. It can act as an emblem of hope and shows how humanity, despite differences and challenges, can be united. you tell us a little bit about what your final project is going to be on, what your final podcast will talk about? So in class one day with Professor Chavez, we were going over the song The Message by Grandmaster Flash. And while I was listening to it, I just heard little pieces in it that I have heard throughout like other pop culture references throughout my lifetime. And I just thought it was so crazy how that moment in history has been captured and recaptured throughout music and throughout TV shows, throughout movies. I just found that super interesting. I have a big history type American studies type brain that I'm working with. So I just found that cool and interesting. So sticking with that, I'm looking at how many times like the song has been sampled, the different types of music it's gone from. So that's like hip hop rap. But like even two years ago, an artist had reworked the song and put it into an Afrobeat song. So I thought that was cool. And then there's a little piece that goes like, don't push me because I'm close to the edge. And that's using Happy Feet, which was one of my all time favorite movies growing up. So it's just kind of fun to see how it's been utilized over time. Yeah, so I'm kind of centering my podcast around Cardi B. I originally was going to kind of really break down Cardi, one of Cardi B's songs, and I still am doing that. But I found a lot of interest into how Cardi B has been received, especially by conservative kind of audience, and how a lot of her songs have been turned into this like culture war type thing. So for the first half of the podcast, I kind of talk about how Cardi B is like experiencing this kind of backlash and the culture war type thing. And in the second half, we really go into the song, I like it like that, which is a celebration of her culture and the kind of contrast of the two things. What has been your favorite part of the process when creating your podcast? Honestly, I probably sound like a nerd who loves to write, but writing out the script, because I have had that moment many times where like my best friend who's also in the class, well, I've been typing out the script. He's like, why are you angry typing right now? And I'm like, it's not angry typing. It's excited typing, I promise. But getting all those little pieces out there and thinking, oh, this would be super cool. And like going on a rant and being able to kind of like pick out pieces that I like from what I had just typed up and putting the script together that way has been super duper fun for me. I've had like papers and things and this is doing a podcast and learning about the stuff we're learning in this class has just made it a little bit more fun to end off senior year. Do you think that more people should be experimenting with podcasts? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's not, it wasn't, although it did take a while and just like finding the clips and stuff is kind of like, especially taxing. So you listen to like Ben Shapiro for ages, which is like so annoying. But like, it was surprisingly easy to start, like just to start and make it and like to talk into a mic is not that hard. So I think it's, I had in my head, it was this crazy undoable thing, but it's really it is possible. So I think it's definitely something people should do. I don't see why not. I think it's a fun medium, something different that 
I know a lot of people kind of know what's happening with podcasts, but they don't all have that experience of like putting one together and working it out. I know that a few kids in my class have said that they like their friends have like joked about starting a podcast. Like I think it would just be fun to like with your friends create a podcast about anything that you want to talk about, about any conversation you want to have. But it gives you that freedom, like you said, to bring in different audios and things that you can't necessarily show in an essay or like a more structured video. You can kind of throw things together and be like, oh, look at this. How does this make you feel? What does this make you think of? I'm a, as a journalism student, I've had a class about multimedia and what to do. But making a podcast is still different than like throwing together a video. So I think that each piece, like each day helped me like finalize my ideas, but also learn how to use the different software, thinking about how sonically sounds are going to go together in my podcast along with what I'm saying and making it all balance out has just been kind of cool as I've been going through that process so like having those ideas and being able to just flush out my own ideas was helpful throughout the entire process and I realized before that I kind of had an idea but afterwards it's like okay I'm ready to start working I know what I'm doing I know what the directions I want to take. Do you have any final thoughts or words that you want to tell our radio audience? No just thank you for allowing us to be on the radio <laughs> yeah thank you so much for participating in our class i mean it, you didn't have to do it through it to get to pass your class but like you know, we're such a like a fun engaging crowd of students so like thank you all for your participation and your energy no it was, it was good fun anyway so and a little yellow curly dogs on my desk now i just want to say thank you guys for the experience and coming and helping us out at our school in southland indiana but getting this experience has been great to help stretch my mind in different ways as a second semester senior that I wouldn't have maybe latched on to if it wasn't for this class. Thank you so much for being a part of the project. It's fun to, you know, feel the energy and the involvement and having fun throughout the process. So thank you and good luck to you in your future endeavors as a senior. Thank you so much. That's garbage. You don't need to be a Puritan to think so. It is. It's garbage. Essentially soft por pornography. Yeah, that, that's really what it was. If you go Degeneracy okay. on full display. Why is she dressed like that? Now she's destroying the black community and destroying uh, the image of black women. But here is what the left does. It is the most raunchy, disrespectful, degrading video of women I've ever seen. If you let your kids listen to Cardi B, you are a bad parent. You should stick to stripping, taking your clothes off for men. Yeah. And rapping. Just stick to that. First off, who are you? <laughs> you are Cardi B? Yeah, I'm Cardi B, yeah. I like stunning, I like shining, I like million dollar deals, where's my pen, bitch I'm signing, I like those Balenciagas, the ones that look like socks, I like going to the Tula, I put rocks all in my watch. Deranged monster or intelligent commentator? Cardi B's music has long been a source of controversy in many circles. Her existence as a successful black Latinx woman causes many to feel anger, and her music has been highly racialized. Her existence as a black woman has been hypersexualized and racialized to paint her as an angry black woman. In the media, the constant overhyped feuds with other successful female rappers helped to paint Cardi B as argumentative and aggressive. However, what I most admire about Cardi B is her intelligence on crafting her own image. She created the song WAP knowing the backlash it would get. It played into her already hypersexualized image 
but it exposed a hypocrisy. We only allow a woman to be sexual when men are pushing the narrative, and a woman owning her sexuality is controversial. While WAP is a great song, it's not the song we're going to talk about today. Cardi B is a Dominican Trinidadian born and raised in the Bronx, New York, and my favourite song of hers celebrates this heritage. I Like It Like That includes a Spanish language rap and samples from a Boogaloo song, I Like It Like That and Oh That's Nice by Pete Rodriguez. This is an important song for Cardi B as it celebrates her heritage. However, in popular imagination, she is often racialized as black. This is due to the black-white binary that often erases Latinx narratives. In fact, Latinx voices have often been erased in musical history. Salsa is seen as an external, South American trend, but it's a New York phenomenon. And the history of hip-hop has also been racialized as black that ignores the wealth of talented Latinx artists that help create the genre. In Cardi B's song, we see an unapologetic embrace of Latinx culture, with the presence of samples from Boogaloo songs combined with Latin trap stars Bad Bunny and J Balvin. So, what is Boogaloo? To understand Boogaloo, I think it's first appropriate to listen to Jump Blues. This is around in the 1950s and 60s and was a precursor to rock and roll, and we can play a sample now. music that comes from cultural sharing. We see music from all the different parts of New York and Latin America. We see son music, fandango, cumbia from Peru. It all comes together. While earlier Boogaloo does exist, the main style began in 1966 with Bobby Cruz. It's a little bit funky, there's a little bit of rhythm, but it's all coming together. By 1967 we have Oh That's Nice, the sample used by Cardi B. legacy. We're seeing more and more Spanish language music in the American charts, like Despacito from a few years ago, but I think it's more than that. Cardi B challenges us. 
With her sexuality in rap, or her Latinx heritage and I like it like that, she's unapologetically herself. And while researching this article, I found clip after clip of conservatives ridiculing the way she talks and the way she dresses. But I also found that she is intelligent, political and unafraid to take a stand. So while conservatives ridicule her, I think we can all stand to be a bit more like Cardi B. And we're back. You're listening to WLPN LP 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio Chicago. And this is Yolokali Crashed a Class again. You just heard another one of the students' podcasts. And now we're going to take a quick break from listening to the projects and have a conversation with a special guest that I actually interviewed back in our first Notre Dame show three years ago. He's a writer, musician, and associate professor of anthropology at the University of Notre Dame, teaching the Ballads to Hip Hop, Music, Migration, and American Latinx's class, Alex Chavez. Alex, thank you so much for being here with us today. I know that you're very booked and busy being the professor and artist that you are. So to start, could you just explain for us what your class is about and some of the topics that you discuss throughout the semester? It's an anthropology class and Latino studies course, and it's called Ballads to Hip Hop, Music Migration and American uh, Latinxes. And we really look at a number of musical styles that are part of the kind of Latinx experience. And with these questions of how music and, and musical expression relate to much broader questions around the Latinx experience, like identity, culture, migration, uh, citizenship, and how it is that through musical practice, the Latinx community has, you know, sort of carved out a space for itself in terms of American popular culture and also sort of transnational connections between the United States and and, and Latin America. So, you know, some of the styles that we look at are um, hip hop, as the title suggests, but also like salsa, uh, cumbia, um, the corrido, that's where the title of ballad sort of comes from. Um, and so, yeah, we survey these different styles, ask these kind of broader social questions, and the students engage with, you know, the history of these styles, what they sound like, and yeah. What interests you in having these kinds of conversations with with your students and like the creation of this class? So I'm an anthropologist, and most of my work has always dealt with this question of of sound uh, and orality uh, in in different ways, from music to language to other forms of kind of cultural production that are sort of sonic. I'm just interested in in these questions. And so, you know, I formulated this class to, you know, continue those, those, exploring those questions uh, alongside students. But but the focus on music uh, to me is, is also important because you know, oftentimes it is through something like music uh, or, or you know, cultural forms that way that people do work out their politics or that people do find meaning or that people do build community. 
you know, that, that, there, that there's, there's a political question there um, and that, you know, sometimes we can take for granted, but I mean, frankly, it is those things that are the most meaningful in our lives, you know, uh, something like music, right? That we always want a soundtrack to what we're doing, that we always have really interesting or impactful experiences when we experience live music, et cetera, et cetera. And so to me, getting to engage with students around those questions, around sort of musical practice and performance and uh, and consumption and all the rest of music is, I don't know, I think it's a, it's a fun and interesting way to, to explore uh, a lot of those questions that are political, that are social, that again, sometimes we take for granted because we assume those political or social questions are only addressed or present like in political movements or social movements or, or you know, the real formal realm of politics. And, and that's true. That happens there too. But it's in these everyday kinds of practices and performances. And, and in this case, music, where a lot of that stuff is also is also there. So I just think it's a cool way to, to explore those things. And, and you know, I feel like after doing it a number of years, students find the class productive and engaging. And I think they have fun. For sure. And within like the research and the studies that they're doing in the class, it all leads up to this final project that we're featuring on today's show, which is their final project, their podcast. So podcasting and I feel just audio in general tends to be one of the more probably like unconventional mediums when it comes to presenting information, storytelling, pretty much project presentation in the school setting. Why did you choose podcasting to be the medium for your students final? That's a great question. To me, it, it, it was kind of the obvious sort of medium or, or way of having them engage in, in their own kind of research question, because I don't know, there's, there's something kind of odd about studying music and sound an entire semester, and then your final project is a written paper. It, like, it doesn't quite make sense. So it's like, well, you know, we've been thinking about sound and and music and listening to a bunch of stuff together and, and a bunch of the classes they run as listening sessions where, you know, we talk about material and they introduce us to music and it's like, well, we're already doing this all semester long. So let's, you know, your final be, yeah, in podcast audio form where you can present material and, and a question that you're interested in. And, and I tell them, you know, like I, I have no preference in terms of what they want to do, a genre, a musician, a moment. You know, do something that they're passionate about, that they're interested in, and related to some of the themes we've been talking about in class. And I think within that, probably one of the many struggles, other than like obviously research, analysis, deeper thinking within the context of musical genres and like the things that they're looking at, one of the other issues is them learning, you know, the script writing and audio tech portion of the putting together podcasts, whereas in other classes, they're putting together PowerPoints or written papers and stuff. And mm -hmm. so that's where YOLO comes into play with the three-day class that we taught uh, at your at your class in uh, Notre Dame University. How did this collab with YOLO come about? Well, this is the second time that we do this, right? So, you know, it, it largely was through, I think, a, a couple of connections. One, um, I've, I've known both Stephanie Manriquez and, and Charlie Garcia, who, who work with Yolokali have for a very long time, particularly around this question of, of media and sound design. And, and so I've known them as friends for a long time. So there's that piece of it. But the other is that, you know, I myself have been 
doing research um, around sound and and Latinx Chicago kind of broadly, right? And and one of the kind of cool quote unquote sort of case studies uh, of that research was kind of getting to to know Yolo Cali and, and and understanding what you all do in terms of sound design and telling your stories and, and documenting your experience right um, within the context of Chicago from a kind of a youth perspective, which I was super impressed by, enamored with, and I thought it was like one of the coolest things. And so both those things coming together, I don't know, one day as, as I was scripting with them, I don't know, I just, it was kind of like a light bulb went off where it was like, you know, like, this is what Yolo Cali does. They're like experts. So, you know, maybe just another way to, to continue to build our relationship together and with, you know, an amazing group of people that does really cool work. I was like, well, I thought about inviting you all to, to kind of work with my students. And, um, yeah, it's been it's been great. And I know this time around we did sort of three sessions across the span of like a week. And I, I don't know, I thought it was it was super cool. All right, Alex, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for hopping on this interview with me today. And more importantly, for allowing the Yolokali youth to share the art that they learn and love with all of your students. That's it for our first hour. We've spoken with class instructors August and Melissa, Professor Chavez from the University of Notre Dame, and even got the chance to hear some of the final podcasts produced by the students of the Ballads to Hip Hop, Music, Migration, and American Latinx's class. In the second hour, we'll be listening to plenty of more podcasts produced, as well as hearing from some of the students that endured the experience. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to What's Up on WLPN LP 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio Chicago, and this is YOLO Crash to Class again. A Tribe Called Quest is easily one of the most recognizable names of the pioneers of modern-day hip-hop. Artists today like Kanye West, Outkast, and Pharrell all mention that they listened to Tribe and attribute the group to influencing their music. But if we want to know what makes A Tribe Called Quest so unique, we will have to look at what inspired them and how their unique hip-hop sound made them the iconic rap group that they are known as today. Tribe was not the first group to incorporate jazz into hip-hop, but they sure did perfect it. Tribe brought a retro feel to their music, accompanied by accents of the group's Nigerian roots. A Tribe Called Quest was able to use and enhance older music to make it into a fresh new sounding rap song for the 90s. For example, they use a sample of Billy Brooks, a studio trumpeteer who played with some of the top jazz and soul artists in the business during the 70s. Listening to this, we can then hear how A Tribe Called Quest sampled and repurposed this jazz song into their own song called Luck of Lucian.
no other. Listen very close, cause I don't like to boast. Instead, I tell the tale of the French who prevailed, though the Mr. Crazy Rabbits were always on his tail. While hip hop and rap were on the come up, artists started making their music with breakbeats. Songs like Check the Rhyme and Jazz have a certain musicality to them where any bassist or horn player could play these songs and the audience would know what song it is. There have been other artists that have added jazz into their music before, like Gangstar, but no other artists were able to achieve the unique beats that work so well with Fife Dogs, Q-Tips, and Ali's individual flows. While Tribe were masters at reusing jazz songs and making them into rap songs that young people listened to in the 90s, they also recycled folk music. A Tribe Called Quest sample Lou reads A Walk on the Wild Side. Miami FLA Hitchhiked away across USA Plucked her eyebrows on the This classic folk hit in the 70s was turned into a classic rap hit in the 90s called Can I Kick It? Can I Kick It hints at A Walk on the Wild Side in its lyrics because both songs talk about drugs and the life that comes along with that. When the individual in the song asks if he can kick it, they are walking on the wild side. In both songs, these men are content with what they are doing. Tribe utilized another song from the 70s that was popular and reworked it into something new that again became very popular. Some would even say that A Tribe Called Quest's album, Low End Theory, sparked the love for jazz that hip-hop has in modern day. Huge artists like Kanye West have said that Tribe is a huge inspiration for his music and what he wants to sound like. Wake up, Mr. West! Mr. West! Mr. West! Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I heard him say, nothing's ever promised tomorrow today. From the shot like Timmy's a harder way. So this is in the name of love, like Robert say. Before you ask me to go get a job today. Paul is not exactly jazz in this song. You can hear some influences of Tribe with the catchy hook over a repeating piano riff in the background. Other artists like Pusha T have credited Tribe for opening up the colors of hip hop to him. Tribe showed Pusha T and other listeners that rap did not just have to be in the street bubble that it was created in. Even when rap was born in the 70s, it was a mixture of different music styles and different cultures like African American, Latin, and Caribbean cultures. 
Rap and hip-hop started to branch out into other genres in the 90s, and Tribe was a huge frontrunner of this movement within hip-hop. While hip-hop and rap were genres that allowed youth that grew up in the streets to identify with that kind of music, Tribe made their music more available to a wider audience because they did not brag about usual flexes in rap. Fife Dog on Buggin' Out brags about never having a cavity in his life. Tribe welcomed all listeners into their world, meeting them at an eye level with their non-materialistic boasts. A Tribe Called Quest exposed a whole generation to jazz and were trailblazers for a modern generation of hip-hop not obsessed with violence. For African-American youths, Tribe represented and influenced their culture. The rap group showed them that to be cool was to be laid back and intelligent. Being smart was not just confined to one stereotypical box. It can come in all shapes and sizes. A tribe called Quest had the courage to promote individuality and embrace one's own uniqueness. While other rap groups in the 90s were more socially and politically conscious, A Tribe Called Quest wanted to look behind them and reflect their community and heritage in their music. They realized that simply being themselves was an act of public activism within itself. Tribe is christened with the title of the Fathers of Modern Day Hip Hop by many relevant artists. It's crazy to think that one small rap group in the 90s has made such a huge impact on modern day hip hop artists by sampling old music in relatable lyrics. And we're back. What's up? You're listening to WLPN, LP Chicago, 105.5 FM Lumpin' Radio, and this is a second hour of Yolo Cresta Class again, featuring a collection of podcasts made by the students of Notre Dame's Ballads to Hip Hop, Music Migration, and American Latinx's class. Hi, and welcome to the Everyday I Have the Blues podcast, hosted by me, Matt Ty. I'm a current student at Notre Dame, and I'm going to be analyzing musical styles, genre, and segregation, both in historical and modern context, by analyzing, well, only a single song. The catch, one is a blues song, and the other is recognized as a rock-slash-pop song. One version that we've already heard in the intro is by blues legend B.B. King. The other version, which I'll play an excerpt of now, is by modern rock-slash-pop artist John Mayer. Take a listen. Every day, every day I have a blues. Every day, every day I have a blues. When you see me worry, baby, it's you I hate to lose. 
Should at least be the same genre. There are two versions of the same song, both played with blues inflections and notes. Yes, they're different in some senses, but they're similar in more ways than not. But they're not even considered the same genre. John Mayer's version is viewed as a pop or rock version, and BB King's is a blues song. Now, the question becomes why that is. After all, both artists would have told you that these are the same song. The answer lies in both their similarities and their differences. We'll start with the similarities, then work towards the differences, and finally, we'll come to a non-musical, but rather social and cultural justification for the difference in genre. Now, the two songs are musically nearly identical. From a theory standpoint, both versions are classic 12-bar blues, meaning that they have nearly, if not perfectly, identical structures. Additionally, neither is an original version. B.B. King popularized his from a 1935 song by Pine Top, and Mayer seems to borrow it from B.B. King, whom he cites as a significant influence and who he has played with before. Finally, each of them play very similar styles of guitar, featuring wailing bends and an emphasis on the flat five as a passing tone, which is a mainstay of the blues genre. These songs have the same central lyrics as well, although they differ slightly due to improvisation. This then gets us into their differences, which in a sense help to prove why it is that they are in the same genre truly. Their differences lie not in musical structure, but rather instrumentation and improvisation. The instrumentation problem is fairly easy to deal with. E.B. King's songs by and large involve horns, which are featured heavily in his version, and Mayer's songs largely do not. Given that these are both live performances, Mayer likely just chose not to carry a whole brass section for a single song. The other side, then, is that the improvisational aspects are different. However, this makes perfect sense. It wouldn't be much of an improv if it was copied, no? And interestingly, this difference defines their similar genres. Improv is a mainstay of the blues genre, and the fact that Mayer included this in a B.B. King cover is a clear nod to both the blues genre and King himself. This, in a sense, should mean that the Mayer version is considered blues as well. But it's not. The key idea that needs to be addressed here is that genre has significant cultural signifiers. When I say rap or hip-hop, there are implicit assumptions that come with them typically draws images of African Americans, typically men, and an inner city sensibility. When I say salsa music, one thinks of Latinx communities dancing and singing. These genres, while having musical characteristics, have cultural implications as well that may be even more defining than their music works. This connects to an idea directly cited in Carl Miller's work, where he argues that blues has a distinctly African American assumption around it, whereas pop music has a dominant feel to it typically drawing images of white people performing it. In this sense, it makes a bit of sense why King may have always been tied into the blue genre and not considered for other, more mainstream genres, whereas Mare is considered pop. In another way, it makes no sense at all. King's version reached the top 10 of the R&B charts, has a Grammy Hall of Fame award, and has been inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame. Mare's version, in contrast, is a mere talking point on a larger, well-received live album. 
from any standard definition, BB King's version is, well, more popular. Bear himself might have put it best when he said, I think there's this understanding in the blues lineage that it's going to be a tough time getting through to the inner circle. But you're going to have some people play goalie. And they certainly do. What's this white boy doing? It's kind of a stock question that you run up against at this point in the game. He seems to recognize here that he's not in the blues genre because of his race. And despite him saying in the same interview how much it means to him that guys like B.B. King and Buddy Guy accepted him. It clearly isn't about musicality. It's about acceptance and cultural ideas of genre. This dichotomy makes us reconsider the definitions of genre, both historically and presently, and cause into question the musical legitimacy of genre. Rather, we have to consider whether genre has more to do with culture and race than style and popularity. Finally, we have to begin to have conversations around whether or not this limits the ability of minority people to gain popularity in mainstream genres. It begs the question if genre, rather than encouraging popularity in lessons, can marginalize people and limit their ability to find success in popular culture today. Thank you for listening to the Everyday I Have the Blues podcast. I hope you learned something today, and I hope that we can continue to have critical conversations about the intersection between music, genre, race, and culture. Welcome to the first episode of my podcast called Let Me Put You On, and I'm your host, Benafo. I'm hoping this podcast will grow in the future where we can have discussions about our favorite genres, songs, and artists, pretty much anything you could think of and more. Today, I plan to give you a taste of what this podcast is all about. In the first episode, we will talk about one of my favorite genres of music called Afrobeats. But before I try to define it, I want to see what you guys think it is. So, what is Afrobeats? Um, when I think of Afrobeats, is a genre of music that's heavily influenced by um, that of African countries, and they kind of have this unique percussion sound that may be combined with elements of other genres like jazz or funk, um, and also have these lively vocals that make the music so fresh and modern. So from what I know about Afrobeats, I'm pretty sure that it's the combination of African music, Western pop, and something like house. Um, so in terms of the actual musical components, I'm pretty sure the vocals are a little bit more drawn out. Uh, phrases are like repeated more frequently and their voices are generally like more soothing. Um, and so from some of the music I've heard, it's not really hype. I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe it as hype. It's more relaxing and it kind of sounds like island music, like something you'd listen to, like on a tropical island. Um, I guess it kind of makes you want to dance to it. It's nice and soothing. I don't know a whole lot about Afrobeats, but I think when I think about Afrobeats, I think music originating from 
Africa and and the music typically has some like pretty pretty intense rhythms and and drum lines and stuff like that. Um, I think Burna Boy might be an Afrobeats artist, but I don't know for sure. When I think of Afrobeats, I think of so many artists: Wizkid, Burna Boy, Davido, and of course the legendary Fela Kuti. But most of all, I think West African music in particular, but with an urban twist. I think everyone has some idea of what Afrobeats is as a genre, but let me bring it all together. We can describe Afrobeats as jubilant party music that draws on West African sources hybrid languages, propulsive rhythms, and mixes them with delivery and tone from across the Americas, referencing hip-hop and Jamaican dance hall. This is what we know as the term Afrobeats. Afrobeat was pioneered by Fela Kuti, a Nigerian musician. Fela was introduced to the African jazz scene in London while studying medicine in the 1960s. He left his studies and returned to Nigeria to pursue his musical career. He took a lot of his inspiration from the social events of the time. Fela Kuti was heavily influenced by the Black Panther movement that started in the late 60s. His lyrics made political statements criticizing Nigeria's dictatorship. He challenged his people to gain back their self-reliance and pride. His songs were well-crafted and captured the jubilant vibe that we now associate with the genre of Afrobeats. In addition to Fela's contribution, his drummer Tony Allen did a lot for the Afrobeat genre. He mixed hip-hop, dubstep, and electronica to create the Afrofunk genre. Fela's music was the building block for Afrobeats. Before we keep going, I have to play a little of Fela's music. Here's a little of his song titled Sorrow, Tears, and Blood. We fear to fight for freedom. We fear to fight for liberty. We fear to fight for justice. We fear to fight for happiness. We always get risen to fear. We no one die. We no One child, my mother for house, my party for house, I won't build a house, I don't build a house, I know I won't quench, I won't enjoy, I know I won't go. Uh. So policeman go slap your face, you know, go talk. Now what I'm gonna say next might be confusing, but Afrobeats is different from Afrobeat. Phil Kuti created the genre called Afrobeat in the 1970s, but the term Afrobeats with an S references the popular modern westernized African music that has derived from mostly Ghanaian and Nigerian pop music. As Western influence became more prominent in Africa, Afrobeat started to steer away from politics. The music became more electronic instead of orchestral arrangements with traditional instruments. Afrobeat incorporated electronic sounds, grooves, synths, and hip kicks to become Afrobeats, the genre we know today. So I'm going to play a modern Afrobeat hit. I want to see if you can hear the modern influences that have created the song. There's also a little surprise hidden in the lyrics. Ride the whip, uh, I know feet. 
If you listen closely, you might have been able to hear a sample from the Fela song I played earlier. His influence on Afrobeats has surpassed time and Fela is still being sampled today. Ye by Burna Boy is one of the biggest international hits to date. Ye has a gold certification and is one of many Afrobeats tracks that has had huge success in the United States. The song provides a rhythmic mix of Yorba and English while capturing the Afrobeats sound. So you may be asking how I came across Afrobeats in the United States. Well, we can credit the effect of globalization for the spike of Afrobeats music in the United States. Thanks to technology, listening to music has been made a lot easier thanks to apps like Spotify, Apple Music, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Additionally, the large African diaspora in the United States has played a big role in the popularity of Afrobeats music. Between 2000 and 2015, the African population in the U.S. doubled, growing to over 2 million people. During that time, it was the fastest growing population of immigrants. Due to Afrobeat's vast audience, Western companies are taking notice of the talent on the African continent. Companies such as Sony and Universal Studios have built locations throughout West Africa, hoping to find the next prominent African artist. 20 years ago, it would have been crazy to think that Sony would have had a location in Nigeria. Yet in 2022, this is the reality. The investment of technology has made it easier for musicians from all over the world to collaborate. Musicians can send audio files and ask artists to collaborate through text, email, and video calls. Technology has led to collaborations between artists like Drake and Wizkid, Justin Bieber and Burna Boy, and Beyonce and Shatawale. Right now, the biggest charting collaboration between a non-African artist and an African artist is Peru by Nigerian artist Fireboy DML and Ed Sheeran. It is one of many Afrobeat songs on the Billboard Global 200. Peru shows how far Afrobeats has come as a genre. From the days of Fela Kuti to now, Afrobeats as a genre is here to stay, and it only continues to grow as more people jump on the hype train. Before we sign out, here's a little from Peru by Fireboy DML and Ed Sheeran. When you won't see me, when you won't see me, I'm in West London this evening, giving me the feelings, no, I'm not leaving till I fly. Thank you for letting me put you on, and this is your host, Banafo, signing out. My name is Gabriela de Leon. I am an anthropology major with Latino studies and digital marketing minors, and I am a junior at Notre Dame. So my name is Banafa Bekwe. I am a science professional major and a senior at Notre Dame. And could you tell us a bit about your podcast? My podcast is looking into Afrobeats um, as a genre and kind of looking at its origins and where the genre is now. So. I kind of define Afrobeats and also show the difference between what Fela Kuti created as Afrobeats and what it is now in like the modern sense and kind of show the distinction there. And then also talk about how globalization has helped spread the genre to the United States. And so I kind of talk about that as well um, in my podcast. So my podcast, I'm in the Mariachi Club here. So I thought it would be interesting to see as like, since Mariachi is seen as this very like icon of what it means to be like Mexican as a, and a lot of what we discuss in class is the ways that like immigrants in America have created and transformed music I was like oh like I wonder if that happened to Mariachi and so that's kind of what I'm doing. And what was your favorite part about the process from the script writing up until your final edit? Piecing it together has been really interesting because I feel like you have an image in your head of like what you want it to sound like or seem and so trying to get that to happen in the real world, like trying to find the sounds that you want or like 
sometimes you're like in the middle and you have an idea of what you want it to sound like and then you're like wait actually i feel like it'd be cooler if i did this other thing so that's been really interesting yeah so i'd say seeing how everything fit together it's kind of like a puzzle piece in that sense so like picking out what songs that you're going to use what you're going to use for your background like music for me i did some interviews too so trying to figure out how the interviews are ordered and like how i want them to be displayed because some people give me shorter answers some people give me longer answers so trying to like figure out how to kind of weave that into my podcast has been really interesting. Do you think that more people should be experimenting with podcasts? Um, yeah, for sure. I think it's a great way to kind of get your ideas out and kind of also be heard because sometimes you have ideas and some people can also have the same ideas as you, but you just, you don't get to learn that because you're kind of quiet or keep to yourself. But I feel like a podcast is a good way to kind of record yourself and kind of let people respond to the ideas that you have and it's a good way to learn from others as well so i definitely think podcasting should be something that people take up i think so i think a lot of people are starting to pay attention to the genre as of late and i think it's one of those things where accessibility really goes into media and like who has the resources to really get their opinions out there um and i think more recently we've seen some more controversial opinions on podcasts and that's been kind of interesting in pop culture, but I think it's also beneficial to hear from like different groups. I think what you guys are doing is also really interesting, like to be able to get like different voices out there. Like perhaps like who would have thought like you could make a podcast like this easily, I guess. There are some interesting opinions being shared because of podcasts, but also I think we benefit from hearing from different people and like giving access to those resources. Um, I really enjoyed our three-day Yo Kylie um, experience. That was a good time. And so keep it up. Um, I thought it was really fun. First of all, I think all of the different little classes. I think I really enjoyed like the script writing and the way that it was described, like how different you have to write for like different mediums. But I also really liked the audio editing one because I feel like I had never done that. And it seemed so scary and you guys made it seem so approachable and like easy, like as long as you put some time into it, like you can get it done and like do whatever you want. You've just gotten your heart broken or you're in love or hanging out with friends. Or it's Saturday morning at your parents' house and somebody decided you're cleaning. Or there's a carne asada to be made. What better music to listen to than mariachi? So what is mariachi? Well, that's simple. It's the name of a musician in the genre. And the name you would give to the performance group. Oh, and also the name of the genre. As Patricia Greathouse puts it, a mariachi plays mariachi music in a mariachi group. I'll start with a brief history of the development of the genre. Mariachi developed in rural regions of western Mexico and made its way into urban context after the Revolutionary War in the 1920s, as people moved into the cities. And as these rural mariachis moved to the city, the music changed and the genre was uniformized. Interestingly, even in the initial stages of mariachi, the music represented a form of nostalgia, in this case, for country life.
Traditionally, the instruments used by mariachis include a harp, violins, the viola, guitars, and a guitarron. Throughout the 20th century, we observe a constant increase in Mexican migration to the United States. Now, as the number of Mexican migrants in the U.S. grew, they brought their culture, and therefore their music, with them. Migrants leave a mark in the places that they reach. They incorporate elements of their culture into the mainstream, in this case, the mainstream American. Here begins our discussion of American mariachi. I'm not referencing the acclaimed theater production that recently hit the stage in Chicago, although its themes of authenticity and gender will be touched on later in this podcast. Instead, I will be exploring the ways in which the genre being popularized in this country has impacted it as an icon of Mexican identity and influenced the music. Believe it or not, Los Angeles has become a center for the creation of mariachi music as much as cities south of the border. Once the genre began to reach popularity, it grew into its status as a symbol. To frame the aesthetics of this symbol, mariachis wear a charro suit, traditionally black with silver botonaduras, and the suit itself has become a symbol of Mexican identity and nationhood, but also masculine aesthetics, to be un hombre. These chattels were portrayed in movies as heroes, brave, heartbreakers, noble, and also villains. But behind all of this lie a core focus on masculinity and what it means to be a Mexican man. Now, when we discuss the icons of mariachi, several women make the list. We can't talk about mariachi without mentioning Rocio Durcal, Lilda Ronsant, Ana Gabriel, and even Tejano icon Selena's version of Solo Tu has become a widely beloved song in the genre. So, I just talked about how mariachi's iconicity was centered on masculine aesthetics and values. How did this shift happen? The answer to my question lies in the popularization of mariachi and its establishment of Mexicanness in the U.S. As a consequence of political struggles and the Chicano movement, in the 1960s and 70s, mariachi became an icon and marker of Mexican identity. The rise in popularity of mariachi and Mexican identity led to the creation of mariachi groups in American public schools, which also led to the introduction of more women to the genre. Now. Let's listen to some women. According to Dr. Sochitil Perez, Los Angeles historically has served as a center for innovation, leadership, and opportunity for women in mariachi. Although a few all-women mariachi groups like Las Adelitas or Las Coronelas managed to establish themselves in the 1950s, breaking into these traditionally masculine spaces was still difficult. 
Through performances at the Million Dollar Theater with and with prominent male groups, women entered popular spaces. In addition, through mariachi education, girls were introduced to a new artistic outlet that allowed them to connect with their cultural roots. Now, that was the second time that LA is referenced as a capital for music making and change in the genre. What's up with that? I've talked about migrants bringing mariachi to the American mainstream. To Chicano and Latino populations in the US, there's a tendency to regard mariachi with pride, nostalgia, and a bridge with one's culture. This sort of bridge to one's roots and pride created a popularization of the genre in which people chose to create music here. Just as in its early conception, Mariachi music, for many, provides a sense of nostalgia to one's roots. Now, is this idea of nostalgia good? In the United States, Latinx music is looked at through a lens of folkness, brought about by popular media. The genre's use of Spanish language, along with unfamiliar instruments like the vihuela and the guitarron, prompt a sense of exoticism for American audiences. This image of folklore and exoticness has served to commodify the genre, not just as a music, but as an icon of the Mexican nation state. Therefore, mariachi is a symbol of Mexican identity for both those in the community who seek to connect with these quote-unquote groups, and for outsider audiences. I hope that through this podcast, we have been able to explore the idea that mariachi is not a music, an image solely produced in Mexico. American mariachi does not describe a warped image or a lack of authenticity in the genre, but the histories of those who brought the music into the American mainstream through the troubling physical and cultural borders. Hi everyone, my name is Jasmine Abbas, and today I'll be introducing my podcast, which will be talking about music as a means of telling a story, uplifting and inspiring freedom and expression. From slavery to immigration to everyday life in urban inner city to love stories, we are able to peek into the lives of individuals through listening to music as artists use music to tell stories and have been doing so for generations. The United States has been described as a melting pot of cultures through the struggles and hardships of many minorities who came here in pursuit of a better life and more opportunity. Music can be used to tell stories about ancestors, religion, or even to memorize something. The concept of audiotopias describes the place where music can take you, a utopia almost. It can take you to a different time or even time period. I want to talk about the power that music holds in reminding us of home or childhood or various memories. I want to specifically explore the fusion of Afro-Latin music through the exploration of the Son Jorocho as Afro-Mexican resistance music. There's a soundtrack to literally everything and we are able to empower ourselves from within through music. The impact of Son Jorocho and its unifying power is something that we really need to explore. Finding similarities in our differences while celebrating what makes us unique is really important. 
Jarocho is a native of Veracruz, Mexico, which is where this genre of music originated from. Influences include prominent African diasporic elements and Spanish influence. Many of the instruments, like the marambula and the quijada de burro, are of African influence. It is important to note the context. In Veracruz, the migrations of people and their heritage often resulted in uneven social dynamics. The music really describes this. In the context of Son Jarocho in America, musical experimentation and this fusion is shown among Jarochicano members who introduce elements from African-American hip-hop and Puerto Rican bomba to traditional Son Jarocho. This should be seen as a response to their multicultural reality as American youth and their recognition that many of the problems faced by Mexican-Americans in Chicago are shared by Puerto Rican and African-American communities as well. In modern times, there is a discussion regarding the immigration of Mexicans to the U.S. and the maltreatment and discrimination they experience. Vocalists often make skillful use of double entendres and metaphors regarding social and political issues. Our identities are heavily linked and influenced by music, and I feel as though it's really important to bring up the concept of double consciousness, that idea of being American and something else. For example, Mexican-American, or African-American, or Asian-American. And artists have used their songs as a form of expression and political critique. What I was personally reminded of were songs sung during slavery that really helped slaves remember roots, information, and raise their spirits during these cruel times. In terms of another black experience, we can also explore the political critique artists implement into their music within Nigerian and colonized territories. I would like to introduce Fela Kuti and his impact on Afrobeats, funk, and jazz. The fusion of American and Nigerian influences uplifted African communities, especially during post-colonization, and encouraged them to embrace African culture. He brings attention to the political issues within Nigeria, especially of the corrupt government that he dedicated to fighting against through his popular music. Fellow's work has been translated into more modern expressions of everyday hardships for blacks and other minorities through coded language. I think that many people of color can resonate with the anxieties and sadness Tupac describes while living as a minority or even feeling discriminated against in one's own neighborhood. If that's not your experience, listening to the songs and listening to different types of music can help paint a picture for what it is like to live as someone else. 
something for my godson Elijah and a little girl named Corinne. Some say the black of the better, the sweet of the juice. I say the dark of the flesh and the deep of the roots. I give my heart to my sister's own welfare. Tupac is, if don't nobody else care. And uh, I know they like to beat you down a lot. And when you come around the block, brothers clown a lot. Don't cry, dry your eyes, never let up Forgive, but don't forget, girl, keep your head up And when he tells you you ain't nothing, don't believe him And if you can't learn to love you, you should leave him Cause sister, you don't need Llego a algún rancho con mi guitarra Con mucho gusto soy invitado Les brindo un verso o saludado Porque cantando mi pecho amarra Porque tocando con mi guitarra Toda la gente que va llegando Otros amigos andan bailando Emocionados con su amorcito Por eso digo yo en mi versito Por donde quiera que estoy tocando Canto con gusto mis verserías what you were just listening to is a performance of Wapango Aribeño. Many of you listening probably already know about Wapango or have at least heard of it. In this podcast, I will be discussing the difference between this version of Wapango and the Wapango Norteño. I will then touch on the subject of Mexicanidad and how Wapango has been integrated into many people's conception of Mexico and the Mexican identity in these recent years. Wapango has a rich history in both its country of origin, Mexico, specifically northeastern Mexico, and in the United States. The popularity of this musical genre in the U.S. is evident through musical festivals such as Wapango Sin Fronteras, hosted in Austin, Texas every year, which includes Wapango artists from Texas, California, Mississippi, and some regions of Mexico. There was even an event, Wapango vs. Norteños, hosted this year in Tennessee, a state not really known for its Mexican population. It goes to show how much it has spread even to places we wouldn't imagine. In Mexico, Wapango is recognized as a traditional musical style originating in the 17th century as a mix between indigenous and European musical cultures, mostly performed by field workers on string instruments. There are also annual musical and dance festivals hosted in Mexico in places such as San Joaquin, Querétaro. In Guapango Aribeño, the group performing is composed of four members using instruments like a guitarra quinta guapanguera, two violins, and the jarana. You can hear how once the vocalist starts singing, the instruments stop playing and start up again when he is ending. These lyrics are sometimes improvised by the performer and the performance can go on for 20 minutes or more. You can also hear how only string instruments are being used, no drums or wind instruments. I will now be playing a short clip of Guapango Norteño. Wapango Norteño is typically performed by grupos norteños composed of four members. The instruments used by Norteño are very different from those in Aribeño. Norteño uses drums, a guitar, an electric guitar, and the accordion. There are no lyrics to the songs, and they tend to last about three minutes. After hearing both of them, you can see how these greatly differ, yet are both Wapango as Norteño builds off Aribeño influences. Norteño is also the most popularized version at the moment. 
Even though I have been talking about what bangwo as a musical genre until this point, what bangwo can also be referred to as a style of dancing or a gathering of people. What bangwo as a dance is traditionally performed by a couple on a wooden platform to stomp on to create noise that aligns with what the musicians are playing, making it a part of the music too. The stomping can also be referred to as zapateado and is a common dance style associated with banda sinaloense as well. Growing up, I was familiar with dancing zapateado to banda sinaloense, so when I found out about wapango, I really took a liking to the zapateado associated with it. I did not know about wapango growing up and only recently found out about it when it became popular on social media. I would like to make the disclaimer that when I say it has become popular, I recognize that for some people it was already popular based on their experiences growing up. I'm speaking from my perspective since for me, it is music that has recently become much more widely recognized by people outside of the area where it has always been present. I grew up in California and did not have a lot of wapango influences around me. Here is an audio from a YouTube compilation of people dancing wapango to a particular zapateado sequence. You can hear in the background that the songs that are dancing to are wapango norteño, which is faster than wapango arribeño, so it allows for a faster sequence of steps. However, the steps and sounds being produced from the stomping do not differ from those done with wapango arribeño. This audio shows how the stomping goes along with the music that is being heard in the background. such as this can be found all over YouTube, on Instagram, Facebook, and even TikTok. And now on to Mexicanidad. As it has become more popular, Wapango as a genre and dance style has become a part of a lot of people's Mexicanidad. Mexicanidad refers to how people who identify as Mexican conceptualize what makes them Mexican. It is not one strict definition of what it means to be Mexican as it recognizes that everyone has different experiences and will define themselves based on these. It also acknowledges that Mexicanidad is both diverse and dynamic within a person's life and society as a whole. Culture is something included in this, and I know growing up, Papango was not something that was included in my identification as Mexican. Things that were included included banda and mariachi, since my family is from Jalisco, and that was where a lot of our influences came from. However, I can say that I am noticing that it is something that is now being included in people's Mexicanidad, even people in Mexico that are from areas such as Jalisco, they are considering it as something Mexican, not just as something that comes from states such as San Luis Potosí or Monterrey. And this is something that I had never seen before, and I think it's a great thing because it allows people to discover more about Mexican culture and appreciate Wapango as a part of it. And it allows them to appreciate it whether it is Wapango that originated in Mexico or in the U.S., since there is a lot of wapango that has come out of Texas. I think it will be added to what the definition of Mexican is to people that do not identify as Mexican, but are surrounded by the culture. It will join the list of what is considered Mexican with music such as mariachi and banda and other aspects of the culture, such as tacos and a love for soccer. I don't think this is a bad thing because it is beginning to show the immense diversity within the Mexican culture and it is beginning to show that there is more to Mexico than mariachi and banda. And that is nice to see everyone's Mexican identity being represented in these um, musical genres. I think it provides a great learning opportunity on Lopango as a part of our history and our future as well. 
I'm excited to see where we take it next as new artists with new ideas are exposed to it. I know for me it has provided a great learning experience since before I thought Wapango was a part of Banda, since Banda Jerez was the first time I had ever heard of Wapango and they play it with the Banda Sinaloense style. Now I know that that is not the case at all. I would like to thank you guys for listening to my podcast and I want to leave you with one of my favorite Wapangos that I just love dancing to every single time I hear it. What's up? You're listening to WLPN, LP Chicago, 105.5 FM, Lumpin' Radio, and this is the second hour of Yolo Crash to Class again, featuring a collection of podcasts made by the students of Notre Dame's Ballads to Hip Hop, Music Migration, and American Latinx's class. Hello and welcome to all you beautiful and wonderful listeners out there. My name is George. Today, I would like to share with you a bit of the history, the musical genre known as bachata, and how it came to sound the way it does now. So the snippet we just heard in the intro comes from the first song considered to be bachata called Borracho de Amor. It probably doesn't sound like what you expect bachata to sound like, right? That's because when this genre first started taking shape in the 60s, it was little different than the boleros that inspired the genre's creation. The only real distinction was that the music came from artists from the countryside coming into the cities to record their version of bolero tracks. Bolero Camestino was the name given to the genre as a result. Then bachata became the term used to signify the genre as it was a term that looked down on the artists who played bachata. During this period, Bachata songs were mostly remakes of bolero classics, and some would even incorporate different instrumentation, such as the inclusion of wind instruments like the clarinet. An example of this comes from the next snippet of a song by Luis Segura, playing his version of Déjame Tomar. de beber, ven a mi mesa que yo estoy solo y necesito una mujer brindemos juntos de una vez por Now, the more familiar sounds and instruments that we would normally associate with bachata, like the guitars, bass, bongo, and guira, become more common later on when the genre starts to become stigmatized for being the music of the poor and of prostitution in the island during the 70s. This stigma was worsened by salsa and merengue promoters who wanted to keep bachata artists performing in cabarets, 
otherwise known as brothels. The salsa and merengue promoters made bachata out to be a genre that's ruralness made it backward and worthless, a genre that only the poor and low-ranking soldiers listened to when they hit the cabarets. As a result, the low public perception given to bachata, bachateros were forced to keep working in cabarets and their songs were given very little airtime in radio stations. This is similar to how the music industry in the U.S. made a racial distinction between R&B and rock and roll that served to boost the intention and as a result, the amount of revenue that white musicians received at the cost of black artists who found it a lot harder to get their songs played by the mainstream radio stations. Except with bachata, the distinction was made to keep the poor rural bachateros down in order to boost the salsa and merengue artists. Because bachata artists were forced to play in cabarets, the content of the songs being played started to reflect that environment. Songs about poverty, living in dangerous barrios, and about the artist's love life. It was during this time that bachata started becoming more simplified, repetitive, and less refined compared to the old bolero style that it used to follow. This switch is also due in large part to how poor the new generation of bachata artists were. These bachateros couldn't afford multiple takes for songs, and this new unpolished route that the genre was taking helped encourage a lot of Dominican slang to be incorporated into songs. This slang in the cabaret environment that these artists were in led to songs with sexual double entendres, which stylistically became very popular during the 80s and became known as Doble Sentido. Uh, Tony Santos uh, sings a song in this style called Mama Me La Tranca. The name of the song is a Doble Sentido that, depending on how you say it, can either translate into Mom Locks Me In or it can mean Suck My Private Area. I don't know how explicit I can get on the radio, but you know what I mean. Uh, anyway, here's a snippet of the song. Que problema tengo yo, ahora mismo en mi casa. Que problema tengo yo, ahora mismo en mi casa. Que si la puerta está abierta, mamá me la tranca. Que si la puerta está abierta, mamá me la tranca. Mamá me la tranca, mamá me la tranca, mamá me la tranca, mamá me la tranca. I also want to know that. Sexual double entendres uh, appear in genres all across Latin America and use the environment and circumstances around them for inspiration. For instance, in the chichumbe, uh, so a subgenre of the son racho style, formed as a result of the severe oppression that slaves and indigenous people faced in Mexico, use double entendres in their songs to poke fun at those same oppressive forces. This is similar to how the cabaret heavily influenced bachata. Getting into the late 80s and early 90s, bachata finally broke into the Dominican mainstream, due in large part to the introduction of the electric guitar to the genre and a shift in the how the genre sounded. One of the songs credited to have helped make this shift in bachata is called Huepaya. It wasn't a song that used doble sentido, and as such, it made the genre more accessible to wider audiences who didn't approve of that style of bachata. And here's a snippet of it. Songs like Voy Pa' Ya helped shift the genre into being more and more about romance throughout the 90s and beyond. Jumping into more modern times, groups such as Monchi y Alexandra 
in Aventura pushed Bachata to pass the borders of the Dominican Republic and into international markets like the United States. Aventura, in particular, with their New York influences, mixed in instruments and sounds from other genres into their songs that have opened Bachata up to the mainstream. To close out this segment, we're playing a part of one of their more R&B-influenced songs. Sound familiar? The song you're hearing is Straight to Hell by The Clash, one of the most prominent British punk bands. Originally released on their 1982 album Combat Rock, the song gained a new life when Diplo and M.I.A. introduced it to a new generation as a sample on the massive hit Paper Planes. Straight to Hell with its deep bass and iconic synth guitar motif, is a far cry from the screams and fuzzed-out power chords typically associated with punk rock. In fact, the drum pattern was essentially an analog sample of a drum fill from the reggae song Slave Master by Gregory Isaacs. Recorded in New York, the cradle of hip-hop, this approach was influenced by the emerging genre. The Clash had already experimented with rapping on their 1980 disco and hip-hop inspired track, The Magnificent Seven. This song was the fruit of The Clash's organic encounter between recording sessions in New York with b-boys and graffiti artists. The Clash had a ravenous appetite for different musical styles, which always ended up reflected in their own music. As a result, though their music was always recognizable as The Clash, as their career continued, it rarely registered as punk. Indeed, Straight to Hell and The Magnificent Seven are much less musically perplexing when you categorize them as post-punk rather than punk. For my portion of the program, I'd like to give a little tour of the different sounds of post-punk and hopefully turn you on to something new. I'll be focusing on the post-punk bands that came from the British Isles. What you're hearing now is New Year's Day by U2, 
the most commercially successful band to come out of post-punk. Post-punk, as a genre, emerged as a natural evolution of punk. At least early on, post-punk was still music being made by punks. These bands weren't calling themselves post-punk back in 1978, when Wire, Public Image Limited, and Magazine released the records typically cited as the genre's first. Wire's musical evolution across their first three albums provides a great illustration of how post-punk differentiated itself from punk. This is X Lion Tame from Wire's 1977 debut album, The Flag. One of the most prominent narratives about the development of post punk is that it was a result of punk artists improving as instrumentalists and becoming more artistically ambitious. Although Wire were always more musically adventurous than their punk peers, X Lion Tamer, with its barked vocals that make no effort to hide a heavy accent, a heavily distorted power chord progression, the bass perfectly in sync with the guitar, and lyrics that provide a simple but poignant critique of consumer society, is fairly representative of the first wave of British punk. However, it also contains hints, like the second, more cold and brittle electric guitar part, of the more ambitious musical direction they would later take, as you'll hear on the next track, The Fifteenth, from their third album in as many years, 154. From the beginning of the track, you can hear the same brittle electric guitar tone, now interplaying with the synthesizer and layered with other guitars, which are even more intensely distorted than in X-Lion Tamer. Along with the addition of the synthesizer, it is the difference in approach to vocals that, in this case, is the most dramatic difference. Singer Colin Newman's vocals are much softer on the 15th, while still delivering the lyrics in his thick, working-class English accent. Of course, this newfound focus on atmosphere did not necessarily entail an abandonment of the trademark immediacy of punk. Bands like Gang of Four and the pop group brought a militant funk to post-punk. This is the pop group's 1980 single, We Are All Prostitutes, an explicitly anti-capitalist manifesto set to incendiary jazz funk. Like many post-punk artists, the pop group and Gang of Four recognized that radical content demands radical form. Ultimately, the story of post-punk was one of triumph. Punk rebooted rock music with a clean slate. Post-punk, with the support of independent labels, built a new rock music, 
pulling from a wide variety of genres, cultures, and schools of thought. I'll leave you with a personal favorite of mine, Echo and the Bunnymen's 1983 single, The Cutter. I think The Cutter, with its passionate vocals and huge synth chords, musically channels that feeling of triumph. Do you know that feeling when you just cannot, for the life of you, get a song out of your head? Well, it just so happens to be that I am currently stuck in that position and I feel very compelled to share it with you. Let me just pull out my phone and cue the song. Oh wait, my bad y'all, I accidentally tapped on the wrong song. Here is the one I meant to play. that was probably not what you were expecting. But, fun fact about me, I love EDM. But now you may be asking yourself, what exactly is EDM? Well, let me enlighten you. Short for electronic dance music, EDM is a musical genre produced by electronic instruments, and it is the umbrella term that includes house music, Techno, trance, and dubstep. EDM is made for nonstop dancing, and it is the person that is in the recording studio selecting and organizing sounds in determined ways that is acting in accordance with their virtual effects on the dance floor. It is for this reason that when thinking about the spaces in which EDM exist, it tends to be at places such as Coachella, Tomorrowland, Lollapalooza, or Ultra, where the DJ and the audience are connected and together become the one sound and scene that characterizes EDM. This genre of music in recent years has exploded thanks to efforts by artists such as Avicii, David Guetta, Tiesto, Martin Garrix, Zed, and the list goes on and on. However, among all of the people I just mentioned, there is a common denominator and that is that they are all white men. I think we have all learned how history, either spoken or written, is not inclusive and has a tendency to be biased because something or someone will always be left out. Unfortunately, the same has happened in EDM. The subgenre of house music is stereotypically known to be made by white people and listened to by white people. This assumption makes sense due to its immense popularity in Europe, where it is also out of this space that the rave scene emerged.
I know when I tell people I listen to EDM music, they immediately make a comment to the effect of, you're Latina, you're not supposed to be listening to white people music. But little do people know that house music actually came out of the metropolitan and multicultural cities of Chicago and Detroit, and that it was primarily African-American and Puerto Rican DJs who pioneered this movement. For example, African-American DJs such as Curtis Jones, Derek Carter, and Frankie Knuckles played a vital role in creating electronic music before it was recognized as electronic music. Specifically, going back to talking about house music, Marshall Jefferson is commonly referred to as the father of this subgenre, and he himself is based in Chicago and is African-American. One of his most famous songs released in 1986, titled Move Your Body, not only was the first house song to use piano, but also was influential in progressing the genre forward. Oh my goodness, what a groove. The work that Marshall Jefferson has contributed to this musical field continues into today as his work is remixed and redistributed for the world to enjoy. In 2019, he collaborated with Solardo to release a remix version of the same song he released 33 years earlier, although this time it sounds more like what we sonically understand EDM to be. As mentioned earlier, EDM to the present day continues to be a white-dominated genre. Luckily, though, there continues to be artists who push the conventional boundaries. One of my personal favorites is Dioro, who is a Mexican-American DJ that has been in the music scene since 2005. He is known for his hits, Five More Hours. And Perdóname. It personally makes me happy to see that more diverse people are entering this field because EDM is popular worldwide and considering that I myself am an avid fan of this genre, I find comfort knowing that I am being represented by the people involved behind the scenes. As with any other type of music, I make a conscious effort to keep myself updated with all of the newest hits. It just so happened to be that one day as I was listening to a random EDM playlist on Spotify, I came across this song. My first reaction was shock. Growing up, I listened to quite a bit of mariachi music because of my Mexican heritage. 
El Jarabe Tapatio, also known as the Mexican Hat Dance, is a staple song when it comes to the world of mariachi. Never, though, in a million years did I think that it would be taken to another level and be made into an EDM song. The hybridity that has occurred in this example is just another way through which globalization has manifested itself and representation of minorities and minority cultures is happening. Anyways, thank you guys so much for accompanying me on this journey of EDM music and giving me the space to talk about people of color who are involved in this genre. Have fun and party on! Well, that's about it. <laughs> that's a wrap! Recapping all that was featured in today's show, you heard a collection of podcasts produced by the students of Notre Dame's Ballads to Hip Hop, Music, Migration, and American Latinx's class. We also got to hear from Yolokali class instructors, August and Melissa, on how their experience leading the class was for them. Got to chat with Professor Chavez about the course and heard some insight from students after taking the podcasting with Yolokali three-day course. We want to give a major shout out to everybody that made this possible. Shout out to Alex for the invitation to teach at Notre Dame once again. Shout out to the class instructors August and Melissa, hey, y'all did y'all thing, who taught so well that everybody graduated with honors. Oh my goodness, such scholars. Shout out to Yolokali director and Your Store Your Way instructor, Hanan and Stephanie, for being there to support these young teachers virtually and in the classroom. So supportive. Shout out to the students for being so engaging and producing such masterpieces. Oh my goodness, I'm learning so much. Who else? Who want to shout out? The custodian. Yes, the students that were on campus that were looking through the window like, oh my goodness, I wish I took this class. Shout out to God for having our back, yes. <laughs> and uh, shout out to me, of course, your host, Emmanuel, period. And most importantly, thank you to all of our listeners. This Podcasting with Yolo Cali project is one of the 25 projects that Yolo has put together in their year-long list of events and shenanigans in celebration for their 25th birthday. And you can follow along with them on their other 24 projects on their Instagram at Yolo Cali. Purr. And that's all for today, folks. You're listening to WLPN LP 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio Chicago. And this has been Yolo Cresta Class at Notre Dame again on What's Up. Bye, everybody. the conclusion of our program brought to you by the fine folks at oh not you again no and y'all who let her back in Ah, 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 ah! and that's a wrap
We hope you enjoyed whatever it is you just heard, heartwarming interviews, tear-jerking stories, magnificent music, and the sound of our voices. Because God knows that this is the best content on the airwaves. Don't forget to follow YOLO on all their social medias at YOLO Kali. And you can find all our audio content on SoundCloud, MixCloud, and Apple Podcasts. We bougie like that. Well, that's it. Bye. See you next Saturday from 12 to 2 p.m. for another episode of What's Up? What's Up? What's up?